Hi, and welcome back to the How to Decorate podcast from Ballard Designs. We want to teach you how to decorate your home and unleash your inner decorator. So we'll be interviewing interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world, sharing the trials and triumphs of our own homes, and also answering your decorating questions. I'm Caroline. I run the Ballard Designs blog, How to Decorate. And I'm Taryn. I'm on the product design team at Ballard. And I'm Karen, and I head up branding at Ballard. And we are your hosts. Hi. Our guests today are Ellie Coleman and Sarah Ramsey of the New York design firm Coleman and Kravis. Founder Ellie Coleman started the firm in 1984, and over the course of its 30-year history, it's become one of the top design firms in the country. You're on the 8100 list, El Decor's A-list. Ellie, you also co-authored three books with Monticelli Press, Decorating Masterclass, The Coleman Kravis Way, The Detailed Interior, Decorating Up Close with Coleman and Kravis, and most recently, From Classic to Contemporary, Decorating with Coleman and Kravis. Thank you all both so much for joining us. We're so excited. We've been pouring over your most recent book, From Classic to Contemporary, and I don't even know where to start. There's just so much that blew me away. So kind. (laughs) So kind. I think you should start with how Ellie got into the business because it's actually a great story. Oh, yes. Yes. Go, Ellie. Okay, so this was a very unusual route to becoming an interior designer. When I was first married, we lived in Japan for two years. I came home and I went to graduate school in Japanese and finally determined that I really could not abhor, I abhorred uh, doing the Chinese characters. That's a whole long story. I could go on for hours about Chinese and (laughs) Japanese and how they're different. Uh, After that, I went to work at Japan House Gallery, and then I worked at the Museum of American Folk Art, where I was a guest curator, and I curated two exhibitions there. And I've always been a movie nut. And somehow in like 1983, my late partner, Hetty Kravis, and I decided that we should write a screenplay. So we bought all these books about how to write a screenplay, which was insane because it was basically every screenplay was 120 pages long. Plot point one is on page 30. Plot point two is on page 90. And we thought, okay, we can do this. And we decided to write the story of her divorce. Needless to say, who was the heroine in the story? And we submitted <laughs> our, our opus. We spent a whole year on it to our dear friend, Stanley Jaffe, who had just won an Academy Award for Kramer versus Kramer. And I hope both of you aren't too young to have ever heard of that movie. Have oh, you heard of no. it? Oh, no. Of course. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was, too young. It was Meryl Streep's <laughs> debut. She won her first Academy Award for the supporting actress in that. Anyway, we submitted it to Stanley. We went over to his office at Paramount Pictures for our meeting, thinking that he was going to say it was wonderful. He laughed. He cried. Instead, he said it was literally the worst thing he had ever read in his, <laughs> his entire career. <laughs> and I said, oh, my goodness, having had five careers before then, what should I do when I grow up? And then without skipping a beat, he said, you, sh- you and Hetty should be decorators. And we were like, oh. And he said he loved both of our homes. We'd done them all ourselves. And he knew that we had a, a habit after dinner parties. We would go into people's living room after a glass or two or more of wine and rearrange all their furniture and all their accessories. It was our favorite (laughs) parlor game. And he said, you you have to decorate my apartment. He had just fired his third decorator. So then on October 1st, 1984, our, our company was born. And it was so lucky for me because 
number one, writing is really fattening. And, you know, literally, you'd write a sentence. You'd say, that's really good. I think I'll have a cookie. And I'll have another <laughs> cookie. So we, we kind of managed. The next day, we went to his apartment. We listened to all of his problems, and they seemed so easy. And we just solved all of his problems, and that was great. And then he said, well, now I want to redo my master bedroom and bathroom. And we knew nothing about plumbing or tiling or anything. We were like, well, let's try. <laughs> and we did. And, you know, that was 35 years later. And now we're very lucky. We've been in business and had just a wonderful, I've had a wonderful experience on these very exciting projects that we've done all over the country. So that's that's the history of the company. Wow, yeah. that is a great like origin right. story. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that, um, well, it's the introduction to your book. You talk about, um, and just FYI for all of our listeners, um, when I talk about the book, we're referring to the most recent one from contemporary to, cl- or no, from, from classic, classic to contemporary. Yeah. And may I add that it's still available on Amazon? <laughs> okay, good. That is a very good book, But if you can't, call Amazon. <laughs> and we'll link to it in our show notes. Um, so you. I just want everyone to know that's the book we're going to refer to the most um, here. So, um, but anyway, in the introduction to the book, you talk about redoing your living room. And I just loved that as a, well, as an introduction, but also just almost like a, um, like a little course because you had before pictures and after pictures and you sort of broke it down into four overall ways that you updated a new rug. You got, you sort of swapped out for some sleeker furniture, sleeker drapes, and then editing accessories. And I was wondering if you could kind of just tell our listeners about that process because, it was so simple. Um, and I think something that everyone could follow those four things. And it really, it really did make a huge impact in um, the room. And I just, I, thought, I think everyone should hear about it. <laughs> well, I think, I think the most important thing is that interior design is not static and anything that's static by definition grows stale. For example, do you ever walk on the street and see a friend from high school who still has the same hairdo and wow. the same kind of clothing? And you're like, holy cow, where has she been these last yeah. 30 years or 40 or whatever? So we really feel that it's so important to constantly refresh your interiors. And as you said, Caroline, there are a lot of easy ways to do it. I feel also because I'm in an office with very young, dynamic women, and they're always challenging me at this point. Uh, you know, we have not stayed the same. Uh, first, the first important thing is to evaluate um, what's painful and what's not painful to change. What's painful can often, often be the rug because that the rug is typically the largest purchase. The living room rug is the largest purchase in any interior, but, but all the design decisions flow out of that living room carpet if you do the house mm-hmm. right. In other words, that the room should flow seamlessly from one another. So the first thing that I decided to do in my room was that my original rug was too saturated for how I all think we want to live today, which is in a much brighter, cleaner environment. In in my in the former incarnation, we were um, really trying to follow very, very classical rules. But if anybody looked at my living room now, it still has the same personality, but it's younger and fresher. So as you said, the first thing is I changed the rug. Then I changed the style of the upholstery. And also, that doesn't have to be painful either. If you have a neighborhood 
upholsterer, he could take, for example, the fat arm of your sofa and just give it a diet by restuffing the arm. So that's not mm. painful mm. at all. Um, I did change the curtains and curtains can be very simple or they can be very ornate. That depends on your interior and what your point of view is. But two of the easiest things in the whole world to do are to reorganize your stuff. All mm. of us have stuff that's been given on an anniversary, when somebody comes for dinner, you want to leave out that picture frame that they left out. And we, we actually deal with this in all of our books. And what we call it is accessory harmony. You've got to have some point of view behind your accessories and not to overcrowd them. Because when you have too much, you actually see less. So that's mm -hmm. an easy thing that anybody can do. There's also That's something I also learned in Japan. Because if you keep everything mm -hmm. the same, you stop looking. In mm -hmm. Japan, I don't know if you all know, there's something called um, the tokonoma, which is a little niche in every room in which you put a seasonal flower and a seasonal artwork so that when your guests come, either you've taken it out for them because something they're interested in or something that refers to when you're seeing them. Most of the artwork in Japan in a traditional home is kept in a closet. Not like us. We put out yeah. every last thing. So so that was very important is to reorganize your stuff. And then easy, easy things like changing your lampshades. I mean, sometimes we go into people's houses and again, they bought the lamp from wherever. It's got one kind of lampshade. The next lamp has another kind. And, you know, we, we're very, you know, very, um, a little bit authoritarian about lampshades. Like we I love the look of colored lampshades, but the fact is they don't give any light. And mm -hmm. as I grow older, yeah. light is so important to me. And we have many, many sources of light, as many as possible in a room. Everything dimmed down low, but creates a very glowing room. So that's the story of the transformation. Well, I also noticed that even your art, so you changed the art around in the living room, but as I was leafing through like to the next page, I could see you had taken some pieces from the living room and put them in the library. So it isn't as if you threw everything away. Cause one of the things you said was one of the things I love most is my art and I, I won't give it up. And I'm like, where'd she put it? And you just rearranged, right? Well, that's another thing. If you rearrange, you're going to look at it more carefully. And the other thing too, is a lot of people get very doctrinaire and they say, I have to have only one kind of art or one kind of art from one period. And I think that's like silly. The art is supposed to represent who you are and what your interests are. So for example, in my library, I love that I have 19th century pictures talking to a modern park, uh, pop art painting. I like the dialogue between two disparate things. To me, that creates um, mm -hmm. an individuality, which is a window into who I am and what my interests are. Yeah. Well, plus, if you keep them all next to each other all the time, then, or if you say, oh, we can only use the representational art in this room, then exactly. rearrange. What's the fun exactly. of that? <laughs> fun. There's nothing, it's very liberating actually to rearrange. And it started very interestingly done by my amazing young colleagues like, like Sarah. They can't, one day I went off on a I don't know, I was at a job site someplace and I said, just go to the house and rearrange a few things. Well, when I came home, Oh my God. So the <laughs> painting that's in my living room, the Gottlieb that's bright green with the burst was upstairs in my study. And they started with that. <laughs> and then from there, oh my goodness. I remember the, the, there was the wedding gift that we put away, something very special to you. And we, we put it in a cabinet 
because we didn't realize how special it was. (laughs) That's very interesting to send your team to your own home and be, you know what, get in there and update it. Because we do get emotionally connected, don't we, to our spaces. It's hard to be objective. But so Kelly has always said like her her um, apartment is the laboratory for the office. So that's where we experiment with new ideas and new things. So it's always changing, which is so great. And we know her apartment intimately. If we, if we need like a picture of yeah. specific things, we'll say, can I go over to your apartment and take a picture of your finial in your library? And it's great. It's And she lives right off the street from the office. So it's perfect. Sarah, can you tell everyone a little bit about your background? Because I I think I mentioned that you and Ellie are partners, but um, I didn't really give anyone any more information than that. And yes. that is a shame. So I'm sorry. No. <laughs> so I, um, I started my career in the auction business, actually. And I worked at um, several auction houses and landed here in New York at Sotheby's. And um, I worked in the uh, the contemporary art department and a friend of mine came along and said, um, I know a decorator that needs an assistant. If you're, you know, I think you'd be great. Um, and I thought about it and I said, okay, maybe I'll go interview. And I came to the office and I interviewed Ellie wasn't here. I interviewed with the girls here and then I came back for a second interview and I thought, okay, I can make this leap. And it was, it was, it was a big leap because at that point I was already 30 years old and had sort of established myself in the auction world, but I wanted a change and I thought, okay, I, I'm, now's the time. So I hadn't even met Ellie and I was hired as her assistant and I didn't, I didn't know how to read a floor plan. I knew nothing. And I learned it all on the job and worked my way up. And I've been here 15 years. Wow. Ellie, you must trust your team. Oh, my God. You have to. First of all, not you have to. When you have the kind of talent that I have here, it's very easy to trust them. And what I really object to is offices that are run where the boss gives directives and it flows on down. Here it's the opposite. The ideas percolate from the bottom and come up. So even the most low level uh, assistant here has to have a point of view that we listen to. First of all, you can't ask somebody to type lampshade orders all day. I mean, that is like rude, <laughs> but, you know, and why would they want to stay or be, have a, have a, you know, uh, investment in the company, psychic investment. So we always, we work in teams. We have four partners and we work in four teams and it works really beautifully. And the partners such as Sarah are really good in sharing responsibilities with their team rather than dictating from the, from the top down. It's, it's worked really well. And I have to mm-hmm. say that one of Sarah's great strengths having come from the auction world is that she really has a very, uh, excellent knowledge of art and antiques. And that's been very helpful since that's one of the big parts of our company is including art and antiques in our interiors. Right. We definitely need to talk about art because just going through the book, that is such a huge topic that you cover in the book because in many cases, your um, clients have art collections, either very impressive ones or ones that are just very emotional to them. And, um, and actually, the one that really struck me, I thought was so funny, was the one, um, it was your nephew's apartment. And you said that yeah. you, the the catalyst for him hiring you was 
not it didn't seem like it was because he wanted the apartment to function better or be more comfortable or be more beautiful. It's because he wanted it to showcase his art more. And I thought that was so funny yeah, yeah. because, you know, we all sort of get into our homes and we live with things the way they are and we just get used to them. And so I think you sometimes don't realize how much more functional or enjoyable a space can be until you really put in that effort. And I thought that was funny that his art was... Um, his art is really quite out there. In fact, it's called mm-hmm. outsider art, which is very interesting. It's art that's done outside the normal canon. So these mm-hmm. are people in jail, in psychiatric institutions. I don't know if you guys know about this uh, subject. It's become a hot collectible right now. Um, and he's constantly changing things. So we had to give him the kind of canvas where, where he could introduce new things and edit and, and keep going. So that was fun. Yeah. Talk about the furniture choices because um, and how you chose things that would not compete, I guess, with the almost rustic quality of the art? Um, I think you can actually have anything that you like go together. This is where I probably differ from other decorators to the extent that I think if you love it, it will work. And the first challenge I had in that respect was many years ago, we had a collector of fantastic Chinese porcelain, like really museum quality, the, the bowls and the, you know, the covered vases and stuff. And she fell in love in doing her apartment with Biedemeyer furniture. And, you know, typically Chinese porcelain was put, put with Americana, not the kind of Americana that I have in my house that you saw in the book, but really high style Philadelphia, you know, mm-hmm. Boston, Newport, mahogany, shiny things. And she kind of taught me this idea. This is way over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. That If you love it, you will find the psychic connection. And it worked. It was one of our most successful projects. And from then, from then on, I really appreciate even more all the clients who come to us with, you know, unusual collections or, you know, I think the problem with art is that people are paralyzed today. They read about auction numbers and they think they can't enter the art market if they don't have something on their walls that people can recognize their failures. It's absolutely not true. It's just important to have something that you're interested in and that you understand and it'll, it'll speak together. It'll be, it'll be harmonious. Um, Where are some other places, obviously, you know, especially Sarah with your ties to Sotheby's and the auction world, I imagine y'all source things from those types of places a lot, but where else can people find things that, um, maybe aren't quite as intimidating as going to an auction? The best is to go get out there and go to all the fairs. The art there's here in New York, there seems to be an art fair every other week and get out to the galleries and really like hit the pavement and go look at things and sort of educate yourself that way. Um, another, we, we often, some people come to us with their collection already having their collection established. Other people come to us with their art advisor and we work with them and about placement and whatnot. Um, And some people just really don't, don't know, they don't know what they like. So you just have to just start getting out there and taking them to fairs. And that's that's the saddest part about the pandemic that all those in-person activities are no longer possible. And, And also I should add, we typically go to Europe at least once, sometimes twice a year. And that's 
uh, really amazing to go with clients or without in some cases and go, for example, to the flea market in Paris or go to Olympia, which is a very reasonable show in, in London. I mean, there isn't a place where you can go where you're not going to find something at any mm-hmm. price point. And that's the joy. The joy is in putting it together. And the other one thing I did learn at Sotheby's is um, it people would call and and want to speak to the head of the contemporary department, and and their question would be like, should I buy this artwork? And his answer was always like, only if you like it. Like that, mm-hmm. don't don't buy it because it's it's a famous work or whatnot. You have to buy what you like, and that's really what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Should we think about it as an investment or should we think about it more as an emotional experience? I, I think it should be emotional up to a certain point, past a cert- another point, price point. You have to consider what the investment possibilities or lack of possibilities are. But really, um, I would say 90% of art buying is emotional spur of the moment rather than investment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For, for normal people. <laughs> yeah, for normal people, which uh, we all are. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things you mentioned was um, sometimes your clients come in thinking they want one thing and really the project sort of veers off in a, in a direction. Um, you, meant, you tell a story in the book about um, a client who thought they wanted something very traditional. And then I think you, I believe you took them shopping and they really fell for this art deco cabinet. Yeah. This happens happens all all the time. Um, You know, we always like to say, don't commit until you've looked because most people, if they haven't looked at another period or another aesthetic, they need to see. And I always say, it's like falling in love. You have to fall in love with something that's the catalyst for the design of the home, whether it's a piece of furniture or painting or even a color. Like some people come in, we have one client right now who only likes kind of like a gray, blue and beige. And our job now is to make the large house really interesting with a very limited palette. But at least we know she's going to love the palette. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, how do you know? Because I think in this world where there's Instagram and there's Pinterest and there are magazines and there are books, there are a lot of places to find inspiration. But how do you know when you should really stick to your original vision? And how do you know when you can let yourself fall in love with sort of a new direction or a new piece that might take you in a new direction? But, but don't you think it's a combination of experiences? You know, and I think it's like anything else, the more you learn about something, the more valid and deep your point of view is. And again, mm-hmm. as I said earlier, like you can fall in love with things that seemingly have absolutely no connection whatsoever, but they do in your, in your mind. And that's great. That's what makes right. it your home. I think the problem with all the magazines and all this and the Instagrams is that there's such a homogeneity of design right now. Um, whether we went all white or we went all beige or we went all gray or I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, mm-hmm. when I started, individuality was the key. And you would open a magazine and be surprised at the the breadth of design that you saw. You don't mm-hmm. see that anymore, sadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I'm just going to re- remind Caroline, we had uh, an editor on once. Um, Sophie Dow, who was the editor of House People oh, at the time. I love Sophie. We yeah, all love Sophie, right? And we just had her back on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, but she was telling us um, she had just 
written an editor's letter to people like the haters. <laughs> We're like, how yeah. dare you show me that bathroom? That was so ugly. And what about this? And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and she basically said, look, people, it's my job to show you things, not things that you are always looking at, different things, interesting things, things that you might not respond to, but I'm going to show you stuff. And it might not be the stuff that's coming up on your Instagram feed, but you know what? Turn the page if you don't like it. Right, yeah. right. But yeah. it's so Most true. Head. We create Most our head. algorithms in our feeds yes. and in who we follow and all of that. And it really can become a very narrowing experience of what we're looking mm-hmm. at. Yeah, I think that's true. And the world is wide open. and so many different experiences. And I think as designers, we have to embrace that. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Now, one of the things you already touched on lighting a little bit, but I feel like you hit on that a lot in your book. Um, on, oh, and, I, and I didn't even send you book one. We have a whole chapter on lighting. <laughs> I am dying to read book one. It's called Masterclass. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a book that really, in, in some ways, did the best of all of our books because some book clubs bought it. And to this day, I still get letters from people like, is the coffee table really supposed to be 18 inches away from the sofa? We did a lot <laughs> of sort of the basics that um, we kind of know instinctively that I, I think a lot of people didn't know, like, what's the relation? Sorry, I interrupted you about lighting. Sorry. No, go. No, this no, is no. even like, better. Yeah, no, no. But like, <laughs> what's the relationship between the height of the mattress and the height of the headboard? Stuff like that that really isn't taught any place. But because I'm self-taught, I had to teach myself. And that's kind of why we wrote the book, to figure mm-hmm. out what we figured out in the first uh, 15 years of the company. So well, lighting, going back to lighting. No, let me ask about yeah. that being self-taught thing, because uh, you and Sarah both are kind of in that boat, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. <laughs> is, is this trial and error? Are you putting it in and going, oh, that's wrong. Pull that out before the client sees it? Oh, well, we do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. We, we, well... You know, what's interesting is you know, we're very meticulous about our floor plans and the size of everything we study very closely. And when we install a project, sometimes we're working on a project for a year, two years. I worked on a four-year project. You install it and then you think, you know, that chest might be better in on the other wall. And you move it around. And we do that. Mm-hmm. And here we're, we're, you know, we're studying it for years and we still end up moving things around and and whatnot well i think that's also what happened is the collaboration in the office which has allowed us to really when you have more than one person looking at something uh, one plus one or one plus two is greater than the actual sum and i think that's kept um everything much more uh much better right Um, so and and you were saying even the youth having younger people absolutely influence you. Yeah. Yes. I yeah. find that having kids helps. You know what I'm saying? Because they do, they bring a different perspective. Having a young person in your home who's showing you things that you wouldn't normally see. Uh, and they challenge you in a good way to kind of not justify, but to explain why you thought of this. And it, it's so interesting. In our office, we have um, these large islands in the middle of all the workstations, and everybody puts their fabrics and their plans out. And even though there are four separate teams, everybody does not hesitate to comment on what they see <laughs> on the island. And they say, Oh, is that the carpet you're using in the sunroom? You know, I think I have something better under my desk. And and I have to say, one thing that's so pleasant about our office is we're 14 women and people are like, 
asks me, oh, does it caddy? And there's no competition here because we all um, just help each other out. There's no competing with my projects better than your project because they're all good. But if somebody has, you know, <laughs> I need a beige chenille. Oh, I have one for you. Here's here in my bag and whatnot. There's no competition. It's absolutely collaborative, which is great. They're not hoarding the good stuff. Well, we all have our bags that <laughs> are down. hoards, but they share. That's we the good do. part. We yeah. do hoard. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> well, what I was going to ask about lighting, which first struck me when I was reading the introduction that Caroline was talking about, which I love. The before and after pictures, I think, were really intriguing and helped me understand the words that you were you were describing. Here's what I did. Here's why I did it. But um, one of the things in, in that and then later in other um, projects that you talk about is the actual lamp, like the lamps you're changing out, the shade you're changing out. And even in some cases, you talk about light bulbs you're changing out and how that simple thing really kind of can bring a room 10 years forward. But would you talk about that a little bit? Because I felt, I felt like the lamps in your own personal space really took a design turn. Thank you. Well, I think it's um, it's the totality of all the lighting in the room. For example, in my living room, in the current incarnation, I added an overhead light. And I can't stress enough how important chandeliers are in terms of uplighting. I think today people buy homes that developers or somebody has been a little bit lazy and they put in a, ma- a major amount of downlights and then maybe mm-hmm. put a, a chandelier in the entrance hall on the staircase and then they put a chandelier over the dining room table. That is very gloomy lighting and women in particular look terrible under a downlight. It kind of ages you up the wazoo. So we don't want to have that happen. And then we talk a lot in, I'm going to have to send you book one. I see it coming. Uh, about what, what I call lamp harmony. So the lamp, lamps in a room, let's say a large room, like a living room, they have six lamps. So it's important to have some connective tissue between the lamps. You don't want to see a marble lamp on one table and then see, I don't know, a, a tin lamp on the other, or it has to relate and it has to also speak to what surface it's sitting on. Like, for example, I love wood lamps, but they only really pop if they're on top of painted tables or very light wood. So in each case, there's a consideration of why the lamp was chosen and how the lamp relates to the other lamps in the room, how the light bulbs relate. I have to, true confessions, when we first started we read someplace that pink light bulbs made women look more beautiful. <laughs> so the first five years of our practice, these poor people all had pink light bulbs. <laughs> and I didn't feel an iota more beautiful <laughs> or even better in anybody else with these pink light bulbs. So now we're very careful. We do um, three-way bulbs so that you, if you don't have a fancy dimming system, at least you can toggle on the lamp and turn it up from the 30 to, to 50 to um, 100, 30, 70, 100, whatever. Um, so and we're also pretty, pretty um, like we take care about the size to make sure. Mm-hmm. So you don't have one lamp that's, you know, uh, 18 inches tall and then another lamp that's 32 on the, on, you know, the same elevation. So we take care that it sort of is harmonious mm-hmm. in that way. So too. when you're looking around the room, all the shades are kind of, on a At similar plane. Exactly. Because if not, the latitude is very disconcerting. You know, one up, yeah, one up down. down. I had never thought about that, but yeah. that's yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. 
what about if you have a floor lamp? Often floor lamps floor lamps very important. There are two ways to do floor lamps. One is the one that replicates the height of the lamp on a typical table. So that would be around, I don't know, 56 inches off the ground. Or if we're doing a modern interior, then the floor lamp becomes almost like a torchere and it's like 72 mm. off the ground. So, you know, like anything else, you have to relate it to, you know, where it's going. Yeah. It becomes more of an accent in a modern interior. Um, but for reading, people do like lamps at around 56, 57 off the ground. Okay. Yeah. It's complicated. I definitely need to read book one. Lots of numbers. <laughs> I do like a rule, though. You know, I feel like there's some sort of comfort in a rule, which is probably why people love that book so much. You know, I'm not doing it wrong. It says right here. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, we have a big section on breaking the rules, because if you want to, just do it. Sarah, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I was just going to say, since I started here, I know that a sconce is five foot six off the floor, and it's never changed in 15 years. It's usually the best place to start. I mean, there, of course, sometimes you break the rules depending on the, the situation, but five, six, that's where our sconces are. That's great okay. to know. I yeah. know unless, that. unless the sconce goes upward. Then we yes, said it, it swoops upward, upward or swoops majorly downwards. Five foot six is the average sconce height. So is five foot six where you want the bulb the box. to be? The box. Yes. The the box. Box. Okay. Yes. Yeah, like the junction. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I'm, I'm rethinking all my sconces right now. I'm going through them mentally. <laughs> well, no, this is perfect. I'm having an electrician come on Thursday. So I needed to know that. It's a great re refresher. Um, so one of the projects that I really loved in the book was the one on the Hudson River in Westchester, I believe. Yeah, um, oh, the Brooke Astor House? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. That was and, really a treat for us. Well, so, um, and jump in if I'm not giving the right um, sort of background, but it was a historic home that um, I believe Oscar Shamamayan was. Well, um, Oscar was the, or the architect we work with on the renovation of the house. On the renovation, yeah. yes. But the, the room that I really wanted to ask about was that great big living room. And I loved the way you broke it into smaller pieces because I imagine that the function they originally built that room for is very different than how someone would use it now. So I was, I wanted to talk more about the function because obviously the house itself is so gorgeous, so many beautiful art pieces and furniture and fabrics. And I mean, we could talk all day about the details of that, but I wanted to ask about the function because well, this was a, I imagine it was hard to break down such a large space. It wasn't so hard because the clients were wonderful and really gave us a directive of how they wanted to live in the room. It was It's a large living room. It's about 40 some odd feet. And they said the most important thing was that they had to go into the living room every day. They didn't want your typical touch-me-not living room. And the way mm -hmm. how the room worked out architecturally, we were able to break it into three pieces. So on one end, you have a big sectional sofa facing a large TV, which literally is where they hang out every night. The bar is right off the door there. <laughs> and they, that's where I see them with potato chips and beers there at night. And then the center section, they're real sporty people, like unbelievable, is um, a billiard table. Again, they use that every night. And then they have the fancy company end which I don't think they ever go to, which is sort of, <laughs> you know, the lovely chaise and the beautiful chairs and coffee tables. And that overlooks 
the amazing property, which actually, now that it's been cleared out, you can see the Hudson River from. It's an amazing house. And when Brooke Astor was there, and we've seen, actually, I saw the house right when they bought it. It had flowered chintz curtains and a million pieces of furniture. Like, literally, you couldn't have too many little perching chairs in that room. And the people who own it are tall and, you know, athletic. And they wanted a place to flop, not a kind of sit in your ball gown uh, kind of kind of room. But uh, that's how Brooke Astor used the house, actually. Uh, she had big uh, house parties like in England and had, you know, 30 people for dinner every night. The dining room's gigantic. But these were people who really didn't love historic homes, didn't like antiques, didn't entertain, mm-hmm. but they just didn't like wood. Yeah. Or wood. Yeah. yeah, They didn't like wood. But they love the trees on the property are unbelievable. There's, I forgot how many varieties of holly, but I want to say like, Sarah, what, 50 different kinds of holly? Yes. Holly trees is called Holly Hill. Um, And it's beautifully maintained and they love it. They love it. Could I dovetail off of that and ask about furniture arrangement? Because again, I noticed it in your own apartment. It's a large living room several sitting areas. And as you're referring to this 40 foot long room, how does one in in the era of these open floor plans um, that so many people have in their homes, how does one break that down and figure out how to arrange the furniture in a room when it's either really large and we don't have walls or it just sort of defies the norm? You know what I'm saying? Well, I think that's why they need to hire us. Right? See? <laughs> right? There you go. Simple of, what's really funny about it is that when we get a new project, everybody who's working on the team draws their what layout they think is the best. Obviously, you have to draw a layout that adheres to the what the clients want, right? So that's a given. And then we all compare layouts and we analyze the pros and cons of each layout. And then, of course, we present them to the clients. We don't like to dictate I always say we like to collaborate. Mm-hmm. So we show them we could do the living room this way or we could do it that way. And we don't ask them to decide at that moment which way they want to set up the room. We analyze it and we, we hopefully can go to the site, which we can't do right now, and talk about the different, you know, different floor plans. And it, it becomes, again, a collaborative experience, which is what we're most proud of. It sounds sort of like the CAD version of when you and your mom would, you know, rearrange the living room and, you know, like you would rearrange it and the sofa would face one way and then you're like, oh, well, I think we should do it this way. So then you move it all around again, you know, so you're doing it with a floor plan with drawing. So it's probably a lot easier. Yeah. But sometimes we do do it physically, even ourselves. (laughs) Well, it's challenging. <laughs> but, um, one of the um, apartments that you did, it had a fireplace in the center of the room, and then you put a sectional in front of it and sort of a game table in the windows opposite. But nothing was really centered on the fireplace, which I thought was great because I think so many times people would think, all right, I got to put my sofa in front of that and I got to orient it this way and blah, blah, blah. But you were like, Meh, no, we're going to do it this other way. And it seemed to work so perfectly. And I guess that's when you're talking about breaking the rules a little bit, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And well, that's sort of why I liked that um, large living room on the Hudson, because it seems like such a grand room and the choices that you made, obviously, were all very beautiful. And 
there were some grand touches in it, but you could tell just by looking at it that it was just a place to, like you said, flop down and watch the television. And so it it seems like just a reminder to people, even if you do have this great big grand space, it doesn't have to feel formal, even if you do. Yeah, and we're, you know, we're, finding, more- we're finding that nobody wants to live formally anymore, like literally nobody. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's rare exception, right, Sarah? Yes. And um, Karen, I think you uh, the project you were talking about is interesting because it was a pieta terror. And so mm-hmm. it didn't, this apartment didn't have a formal dining room. And so we had to make the living room have multiple different uses. Like we needed a dining table in it and she loved to entertain. So there had to be a lot of places for people to sit. Sometimes we need to make a room be multifunctional, like to um, do a lot of different things for a client. Yeah, I think that we lose sight of the fact that our house is supposed to work for us to do what we need it to do. And don't look at a room and go, this is supposed to be my dining room. Well, maybe that isn't. Maybe it's supposed to be the billiard room or your office or the kids playroom or something else. It's a room. Right. (laughs) Right. And also I find that some people like to decorate for the once in a month time when they're having company or somebody sleeping over. I think you have to look at the everyday scenario. That's the most important thing to analyze. That's a great yeah. practical advice. Yes. Well, I mean, if you're not if you're not enjoying your home on a daily basis, then you're it seems like you're less likely to entertain anyway. So why right. <laughs> right. sure. decorate for that one Today that may never happen. Right. Um, well, you know, we always say that that form and function are the, the twin pillars of interior design. And if a room doesn't function, it's totally useless. But if it's just beautiful and doesn't function, that's silly too. Mm-hmm. The other, okay, so for, I think we're just like focused, so focused on the book because there were so many things I had questions on. But um, uh, sure, go go right ahead. I have it right here. I loved I loved the um, Miami project because mm. okay, I I have in my head when we talk about an accent wall, I think very HGTV, nineties, early two thousands, like trading spaces. Mm-hmm. I need to make an accent, you know. But I loved the way that you did them in this space, and I wanted you to tell everyone about what you did, why you sort of did these big sort of colorful gestures um, and just kind of explain. It's, it's really one of our favorite projects for a young couple uh, in Miami with three, now four very, very active children. Um, so what was interesting about it is it's a very modern house. There's no stop and start to any room. There's no door frame. So you can't say, this is my yellow living room. This is my blue dining room. You can't. So we came up with this idea that if we outline some of their pictures with colored blocks, that we'd have the opportunity to not have the house look cold and empty and just white. So one of the things we did are these are these stripes on the wall to highlight some of the paintings. And we did, for example, a large orange swath in the living room. And I think that's very, very, very successful. It almost makes the actual wall itself, the art, Right. I mm-hmm. guess. Our frame yeah. almost. Yeah. Yeah. It frames it. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. so. I think Did they fun. have all of the art? Because it, it seemed like the art was just, If oh, I loved all of the art. It was so fun and energetic. They, 
They had a lot of it. The one big contribution we had was in the living room. We have basically, I don't know how to describe it except to call it a five foot tall um, stainless steel bagel mm-hmm. <laughs> with a hole in it. It was a sculpture. David Harbour? Yes. Did, did you know David Harbour's? Well, you know what's interesting about it? We went to the Kip Space Show House the fall before the house, no, the spring before the house was going to be installed. And that silver bagel was in embedded in the ground. And I, my, the project manager and I got to the top of the stairs and we're like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what Jane is missing in her living room because we had two complete elevations of glass. So there was no opportunity to put art on a wall. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so we found, we just, we convinced the clients to buy the Harbor, which took a lot of convincing. And then we <laughs> had the problem with all these very active children. That was this mm. incredibly heavy thing going to fall on them. Yeah. So we had to, design a base for it. We had to have it bolted into the floor because there was no telling which one of the kids was going to climb on it and also put fingerprints, God forbid, on it. So we put, but anyway, for me, that's one of the most exciting pieces in the house because it's putting art on a wall where there was no art and it also is reflecting people coming down the stairs, side views of the pool, the terrace. Uh, He really saved us, David Harbour. Mm -hmm. It's, oh God, it's so spectacular. Just that, and it's something about that bullseye that I think is so, I don't know, just draws you in like a bullseye Mm -hmm. would. (laughs) Yeah. It's also because the images are convex, right? So it Mm -hmm. can take the whole room in. Um, It just, yes, it distorts it a little, but that's the exciting part about it. So anyway, I love it. I'm glad you noticed it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and I love the colors, the colors, you know, just feel... I, I'm, we've talked about this with other designers too, that, you know, the colors in South Florida have to be so saturated because um, of the light and it's very tropical. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I, I really felt like that project jumped out at you in the book because, um, you know, just because it was so different, I think. I yeah. feel like this yeah. is the house that in the, uh, most of the walls are whitish. I'm hoping I get this right. Yeah, they're but, all white. Yes, except, and then the ceiling in the bathroom is a, like a blue. Yeah, like a robin's egg blue. Yeah, gorgeous. And, yeah. and you did that a few times in your projects, where yeah. like you had a, a yellow ceiling in a dining room, just a super lacquer, almost butter kind of color. Is this right? Am I making this up? No, yeah. no, you're right. <laughs> Elia often says the ceilings are the forgotten in in decorating. So there's so much you can do with them with decorative paint or wallpaper. We've wallpapered kitchen ceilings and, really and there's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the well, important I, thing, sorry. The important thing is in terms of studying the flow from room to room. So you wouldn't want to have an event in every ceiling. Right. So we kind of sprinkle it through the house. Mm-hmm. That's an important consideration always. What I thought was great and of note in that is that you are doing it in homes that are saturated with color, but even in a house that is all white, there's an opportunity for that. And it makes it really this special moment. Now, thank you. And it's a very easy, relatively inexpensive thing to do. Well, yeah, it seems like it's, you know, if you're going to lacquer something or wallpaper, it's one wall instead of four. Right. So yeah, it's right. immediately, right, right. you know, afford a quarter of the cost. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I could I could fire questions at you all day, but I did have one more that I wanted to ask before right. we get to our listener question. And Karen, obviously you can ask more too. <laughs> but um, okay, I think that if you were to describe for me that seashell wall that you did in Palm Beach, just <laughs> without any context or any photos, I would be like, oh, okay, seashells 
on the wall. Sarah, that was your project. Uh, that was my project. And um, it was really important for the client to, she really wanted to reference the seaside location throughout the house, but that's hard to do and not be too kitschy. So you kind of have mm -hmm. to find that balance. But um, I, so the, there are two spaces in that house that have the shell walls, one being um, the, the pool the pool house and the other that was the ladies powder room and they're actually by two different artists and so they have um and both are french and they came over to came to palm beach where the house was to um install and if you would believe that there the woman um who did the the pool house she stayed for I think it took her four weeks and she applied every shell by hand wow. in the dead of summer in Florida. So I think she was, right. you know, being from France, she didn't realize the, the Florida oh, summer heat, but mm -hmm. um, it was so interesting to watch her, you know, come in with just like bags and bags of shells and put up every shell individually. Wow. Yeah, the other I mean, thing, even the ceiling medallion was shells. Yes. Oh. Yes. yes, she's amazing. So cool. The other thing that was interesting about both of these artists, that we had no idea that there's such a dearth of color right now in seashells because of the tsunami. What was that, 2015? Oh, right. Or something? Oh. I don't know the date exactly. But um, the shells are basically gray, silver, um, kind of purple, beige. There used to be a much greater diversity of color. So that influenced also some of the design uh, decisions we made because we wanted the two mm -hmm. shelled areas to be totally different. Mm -hmm. So they each I worked in no their idea. I had we, no we idea had, that, that the shell color was affected by um, yeah. the weather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to wow. look up the tsunami now. Yeah. Let's look it up. Well, um, if everyone wants to know, obviously go buy the book, but also you can see it on your website. Um the Palm Beach project. So I, I, it, it, I, it's just going to blow you away. It, it's just it is gorgeous. It's just so cool. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it was fun. Okay, today we have a question from Linda. It starts, hi, ladies. I enjoy listening to your podcast, especially now that I'm home so much. I'm probably not your typical listener as I'm a retired nurse working part-time at a fun retail shop. As you can imagine, I have experienced many trials and triumphs, both in life and decor. My husband and I have moved many times, but I think this is our last home. We built a small ranch on Cape Cod last year. It's a work in process and I love change. I'm having difficulty focusing on my style because I love so many different styles. My dilemma is the dining area. I don't like the color of the table or the finish. I love the Ballard Designs round, um, Andrew's round pedestal table and would like to keep my chairs, possibly painting them black so the green cushions pop more with a white table. Size may be the problem. It's an open concept and 48 inches round seems too small. 60 may be too big. My paint color is Benjamin Moore's Ballet White, creamy with yellow undertones, and the light fixture must stay. I also would like panels for the sliding door. I believe she means curtain panels. I don't have any kids, but I do have animals, including a destructive cat. I'd also like <laughs> the space to be easy to clean. 
I have used Ballard Designs indoor outdoor rugs elsewhere. Maybe that's an option. I've also thought of replacing my cane chair with a Dana chair in black. I love the Lottie floral fabric. As you can see, my taste runs all over the place. I need you to help me focus so it can look put together. That's what I love about the Ballard Inspiration Rooms. Thanks for any suggestions, Linda. So ladies, in case you don't know, the Andrews pedestal table is just a round pedestal table and it has sort of a rubbed white finish. And then the Dana chairs she's referring to are Chippendale style chairs that come in a painted white or a painted black or a painted gray or a sort of a natural wood finish as well. Um, And then I'm going to just briefly describe her space to those who can't see it. So she has um, an open concept dining kitchen area. Her kitchen is white. It has a gray island with white countertops, wood floors, um, you know, lots of windows, lots of light. It looks like there's some sort of a vaulted ceiling over the kitchen dining area. And her dining area right now currently has a sort of a natural rug. It's not a natural fiber rug, but it's sort of a natural color. And then a brown rectangular table, very sort of simple Parson style almost. Um, And then some looks like a matching brown wood finish four chairs sitting at that table that sort of have a, a pretty large footprint to them. And uh, and then the fixture that she wants to keep over her dining table is sort of an open caged, uh, like wrought iron pendant, I would say, um, very simple lines. So she's wanting to update her her table chairs. What do you ladies think? Well, first of all, I would say... Um, I, as a pet owner, I totally understand um, there's a comfort for having an indoor-outdoor rug, and they have come so far in variety and quality. It's amazing how that is something we see, have seen change so rapidly, I would say, in the past five to ten years is the the um, everyone's doing it now. And it's great. And I think y'all have some wonderful selections of indoor outdoor rugs and there's comfort in knowing that, you know, and especially in a dining room too, because you're going to have spills and, and whatnot. So she should absolutely look at your, your indoor outdoor selection for a rug. I agree. The technology is amazing these days. They're so soft. They're so easy to manage. You can hose them off. Right. It used to be that anything that was that was outdoor was just sort of didn't feel nice and just looked cheap. And now it's it's like amazing. Mm-hmm. So. It doesn't mean your cat won't destroy it. Right. Right. If you spill something on it, it'll be fine. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of the curtain panels, if she wants to be very uh, practical, she should get something that can be washed. I think there's nothing nicer in a Cape Cod house than having, you know, white gauzy curtains wafting in the breeze. And there are plenty of natural linens that are available all over that can be washed. So that would be a very practical solution. And then in terms of whether the 60-inch table is too big, Sarah, didn't we think that um, she's to measure the room, you know, and measure how many inches from the edge of it to the sideboard, it might be okay. Because she's probably not going to have, you know, it's a casual house. As long as you have 30 inches from the end of the table to the sideboard, you're fine. Mm -hmm. And And also, she talked about painting her chairs, but you could paint the top of the table a color too and get your pop of color Mm -hmm. that way um, Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, painting your chairs or changing your chairs. I think, I think it's also nice to have some wood, like the warmth of a wood in Mm -hmm. there, like natural Mm -hmm. wood. 
Yeah. And, and what, what doing painting the top of the table allows her to do is if, for example, 60 is too large for the room, she could buy your 48-inch table and put a new top on it, which is a very inexpensive thing to do, and paint the top a color. And then she could even, if she wants to be uber practical, she could put a glass top on that. And then you can Windex it and really have a good time with right. bills and stuff. So it sounds like there's a lot of solutions for her issues. Yeah, she's got a great house. I mean, her it's mm-hmm. so nice and light and open. Looks looks fun. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I really like Ballet that. White is one of our favorite plain paint colors as well. So good choice. Good choice. Linda. Every yeah. a lot goes a lot goes. It's a good neutral. Perfect. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Could y'all, one of you, um, just tell everyone where to find you, follow you? I believe. Um, you have a uh, Instagram. We so are... sorry, you better do that because I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> we are on Instagram, Coleman Kravis, and um, we update our website also with new projects as we photograph them. So um, you can find us those two places. And Thank you books, so much. three books, and yeah. hopefully a fourth. Working on a fourth already, we're, huh? We're thinking about it. We're thinking we're we're coming up with. Well, we, we've we've thrown around a few titles, but maybe we should we should. Well, leave us in suspense, yeah. and we'll have yeah, to find right, right, right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. it's definitely worth a read, everyone who's listening. And I'm 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 going to be ordering the masterclass book right away because I love the Thank you so much, guys. Yes, thank you for talking with us today. Thanks, you guys. Stay safe yeah, out we there. Love- yeah. All right. That's our show. Thank you for listening. You can leave us a review on your podcast app. We would love to read it. Don't forget to check out the show notes at howtodecorate.com slash podcast and send your questions to podcastballardesigns.net. And um, if you want to listen to us from your Alexa, you can go into your Amazon account and enable the how to decorate skill. Follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. And until next time, happy decorating. decorating. <laughs>